listening to the Rent Roll Radio Show with Sterling Chapman. Hey, Rent Roll Radio listeners, welcome back to the show. As always, I'm your host, Sterling Chapman. I'm being joined today by Jefferson Lilly. He's joining us from his RV in his RV park today. Jefferson is actually a specialist in mobile home parks. So I'm really excited to have him on today because I have a ton of questions about mobile home parks. I want to know why you invest in mobile home parks, how you invest in mobile home parks, how you pick them, how you manage them where you decide to invest in them. So I think myself and all of our listeners would love for you to shed some light on the topic. So Jefferson, super excited to have you here and welcome to the show. Great to be with you, Sterling. Thanks for having me on. Jefferson, can you tell us the backstory a little bit? You know, where'd you come from? What were you doing before this and how did you get into it? Yeah, real quick. So basically in my 20s, I was a financial analyst. I was the guy behind a spreadsheet, so to speak, for about a decade Went back to business school at Wharton back in Philly. Then I moved out to San Francisco, spent about a decade in high-tech sales with three different venture-backed companies. So I was then the guy with the expense account (laughs) taking people (laughs) out to lunch. I rode the dot-com boom and bust and semi-resurgence. And by the sort of late in my 30s, then wanted to find some more stable income to even out the stock option ups and downs. (laughs) So I thought initially that I'd buy an apartment building. I started doing some research on multifamily and that kind of bumped me into mobile home parks, which I initially thought that's absurd. I'm not going to buy a mobile (laughs) home park and I would delete the search. And I did that again and again, probably five times, 10 times. I'd probably be embarrassed to tell you, but finally it dawned on me that well, if mobile home parks really are seemingly priced better, they seem to be multifamily, why don't I look into it? And then it was pretty quick as I was doing some online research pretty quick to, to figure it out and figure out why this is such a, a compelling niche to invest in. So we, we'll get into that in the show. But then I bought my first park while I was still working in high tech, still had a W-2, overlapped for about a year. And then uh, after, again, about a year, I could see that my last, that startup wasn't doing real well and my mobile home park was doing reasonably well and I was putting really very little time and money into it. So I switched over to do mobile home park investing full time and then ended up buying another park, ended up doing some consulting for some high net worth families that have interests in mobile home parks and then raised my first Actually, first syndication was its individual deal about seven years ago, did three of those, and have now graduated into the fund model, and I'm now just about to launch my fourth mobile home park fund here in about May of uh, 2021. That's it. I sort of stumbled. It was part art, part science, or part plan, part dumb luck, call it what you will. But that's how I got into this niche. I would certainly say that resume qualifies you as a mobile home park expert. (laughs) You know, it was the usual transition from working in mobile phones to mobile homes. (laughs) Right. That's basically what I did. So, yes, it's been almost uh, 14 years now just just doing mobile home parks. Awesome. So can you break down the model to us? Because I, I think there's probably a lot of confusion in the marketplace about what it's like to invest in mobile home parks versus traditional multifamily. You, I'm assuming you don't buy the, the trailers. You just buy the, the land and the pads and 
kind of what does that look like? Because I imagine at some point yeah. you probably have to accidentally end up with some trailers. And- you do into every uh, life, a little uh, mobile home must fall. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. So the way we look at the business is really more as a parking lot than, say, the apartment building world. If you own an apartment building, you naturally own the improvements to the land. In particular, you own all those proverbial leaky toilets and leaky roofs, and you got to maintain those. In our world, as you mentioned there, we don't own most of the mobile homes. So all those leaky toilets and leaky roofs are on the tenants to repair. And not surprisingly, when somebody owns their own house, even if they had been at one point, say, a mediocre apartment renter, if you help them buy a house, they're likely to take much better care of that property, given that they own it. So that's really our mission. Our mission is to expand the supply of affordable housing. We certainly are, of course, a a for-profit partnership, but we do have a social mission that really guides all that we do. So we are, for instance, when we buy a park that has mobile homes in it, that obviously the previous park owner owned, those will transfer to us. We'll typically put those out on rent to own agreements often to the folks that are in there that have been trapped in renting, we'll basically tell them, hey, you pay no more money, but you know, if you start taking care of the maintenance on the house, we will rent to own this thing to you for say 36 months, maybe 60 months, three to five years, a lot of those homes. And again, people then don't get any sort of rent bump. They take care of the maintenance. They take better care of their house. And three to five years down the road, they own it. And they're free to do with the house as they see fit. They certainly could pull it out of our communities. They tend not to. They tend to be reasonably happy and and tend to stay. So then their living cost might drop just down to, say, maybe 350 bucks is probably about our average rent. So basically, it's our mission to to help folks become homeowners and do that for a, a lot less money than what comparably sized apartments go for in the markets in which we operate. So again, somebody might get out of a $1,200 a month, two or three bedroom apartment, move right into one of our homes for 800 a month maybe. Some of our older homes might be down towards 550 a month. And again, they're saving money right off the bat. They're on a path to home ownership. And once they own it, they pay very little. That's awesome. One of the questions that jumps out at me first is around the useful life of the mobile homes. And yep. I love the model, having spent more of my life than I would like to admit fixing leaky roofs and toilets. <laughs> I, I love the model. But I do know that, you know, from my previous experience that that mobile homes tend to deteriorate faster than like a traditional construction build. What is the useful life of these units and and what happens when you get to the end of it? I mean, I would I would imagine that would be kind of a from what I understand it, it's really expensive to move them. The tenant base probably isn't in a situation where they could buy a new one to replace it. What kind of friction does that give you when these mobile homes start to get to the to the end? Interesting question. So the useful life of a mobile home has almost nothing to do with the mobile home, 1%. (laughs) And it's 99% 
the quality of the tenant base. As I mentioned, I'm here in my RV down here in Brownsville, Texas, where we've got a couple properties. I was just over in our Sunset Palms property. A very nice resident, an older lady, probably in her 70s, gave my kids and me a tour of her home. Her folks bought it in 1980. That's 41 years ago now. Moved it into that community. They have cared for it. They have fixed their own leaky roofs. They fixed their own piping. They put in their own new carpeting. That home is immaculate. I've seen similar homes and even newer homes in places like Oklahoma, where I got my start with my first park on the way south side of Oklahoma City. Tenants there in Oklahoma in particular are incredibly disrespectful and rough on the homes. So you could have a 10-year-old home <laughs> in some parts of Oklahoma if you let heard Y'all heard that, Oklahoma? You could have a 10-year-old home that is at the end of its useful life. So really just has to do with kind of the the respect, the moral fiber, the quality of the tenant base. Some of that, of course, comes back on the landlord. What sort of background checks are you doing on the people that you let into your homes? How much money are you requiring that they put down? So we've taken over parks where previous owners took no down payment at all, ran no background check whatsoever, and just spread the word through the park. And what happens then is you're filtering for folks generally with more of a criminal background. One guy with a, or gal with a bad background will tell another like, hey, the landlord's got another available house. They don't do a background check. Just get down here with 400 bucks cash and you can move in. So I bought a couple parks like that. We don't continue to run them that way. (laughs) We do actual background checks on folks, make them put down typically at least $1,000 on an older home. Our property out in Hastings, Nebraska, we just last week sold a house for $10,000 down and are financing about another $45,000 mortgage. So, you know, that person is highly likely to respect that house at that price. They passed our background check. They've got $10,000 skin in the house. So again, a lot of it's it's really then sort of about the tenants and then how responsible a landlord is to keep out folks that otherwise, you know, want to hide their background from you and put down zero. But anyway, again, some homes I've owned in, in Oklahoma have end of life after 20 or 30 years. And then again, there's some here and down here. And this is more of a seniors 55 and up community. And again, those homes, I would guess, would have at least another 40 years useful life in them if they pass down to a third generation in that family. So check with me in the year to 2050 <laughs> or 2060, and I'll give you a report on that mobile home. <laughs> awesome. So what is the, and I'm trying to think of a I guess politically correct way to phrase this, but like, what is, you know, I'm in South Louisiana. And when we look at trailer parks in South Louisiana, they're a pretty scary site. They are. Not like it. I mentioned the prospect of buying a mobile home park to my wife the other day. And she very 
abruptly balked at me, you know, because of what <laughs> we see down here. But yeah. I explained yeah. to her that across the country, there's, there's very nice mobile home parks where they have teachers and firefighters living. I mean, sure. what is the typical profession sure. in these communities? And can you do a little bit to shine a light for those listeners, for those of us that are in areas where the typical mobile home park tenant base has a, a pretty bad reputation? Expand yeah. on that subject a little bit for us. Yeah. So the Southeast where you are, and this does not really, I don't, wouldn't really include Florida as being the Southeast, but sort of classic Southeast into Alabama, Mississippi, you tend to have a very rough, disrespectful tenant base. The Southeast also tends to be historically a fairly poor place with, you know, very few good economies. I would love to own in Atlanta, that would be great. Or in Chattanooga, that would be great. Frankly, most mobile homes, really mobile home parks in most cities have long ago been redeveloped into shopping malls and condos and other things. So our business is, as I call it, kind of a donut business. You're typically buying, you know, some distance around from the downtown metro. So the dynamic in the Southeast tends to be like if you're buying 30 minutes from downtown Chattanooga, you've probably got a pretty poor economy. You've also probably got pretty bad infrastructure. Likely uh, the mobile home park would be well water and sewage mm-hmm. lagoon. Sorry, well, it could be sewage lagoon or septic or some septic. private. So that's a problem. Whereas if you buy really most anywhere else in America, in the greater Midwest, you know, if you're 30 minutes outside of Omaha, 30 minutes outside of Chicago, 30 minutes even outside of Billings, Montana, you're probably okay. You've probably got a much stronger economy and probably you've got a park that's on all city utilities. What you're saying is the rest of the country has better poor people than us. (laughs) <laughs> well, better, How, why do you think better, that is? better, better folks that, that, that are lower income? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm uh, just I was teasing, obviously. But yeah. why do you think that is? What do you think causes that geographical differentiation? The South, you know, with its history of being more agricultural and way back, you know, having the slave trade and whatnot, I think really holds back the economy in, in the Southeast. But yeah, again, it's just night and day, the the difference between small towns in the Southeast and small towns almost anywhere else. So I've actually never owned in, uh, I take that back. I Well, I did own a park. I've sold it. I did pretty well with it in Raleigh-Durham. We were pretty much in Raleigh-Durham. We weren't like 30 miles, 30 minutes outside. We were really in the city. So anyway, so so I've owned, I guess, just that one park in the Southeast. And again, it was in a major metro and, and we did well with it. And it was all city utilities. It was it was very good. And the tenants, again, were just more respectful. We did some rent to own agreements there. We helped more people get into to homes. We renovated some homes that came with the park that, frankly, the previous owner was putting no time or money into. He had he had inherited the park from his father and was just cash flowing out of it. I believe he had no mortgage on it. So there's a big tip. 
pick your parents well. <laughs> you you want to parent you want to inherit a mobile home park fully paid from your folks or grandfolks. <laughs> but anyway, so yes, uh, so I've not owned very much in the southeast. Wichita, Kansas has kind of been my historic center of gravity. I, I don't own there right now, but I've owned upwards of 550 pads in Wichita. We did pretty well with those. I own now in places like Pocatello, Idaho, Fairbanks, Alaska, Roswell, New Mexico. I'm down here right now in Brownsville, Texas. All of these are, are reasonably healthy towns, not in the Southeast. And again, we're, we're bringing in homes and, and helping people become homeowners and get out of the game of paying rent forever in, in an apartment complex. Sure. That's going to be impactful to someone's financial situation if they could drop their monthly payments from $900 a month to what you said, $350 a pad, pad rent. They own the house, yeah. Uh, that could be quite impactful to somebody on a fixed lower income. Sure. So it certainly sounds like you're doing the community a service. Um, yeah. my, ne- my next question is around like your, your criteria. Like I, I know what to look for when buying an apartment complex, but like how do you, what attracts you? A, to the market and then B, once you've established a market that you're interested in investing in, which we've already established is not the Southeast, how do you underwrite the individual deal to determine if that's a part that's going to make you money and that you want to be in? Yeah. So we're typically looking to buy in metros of 50,000 people and up. We are typically looking to buy in metros where the average house price is 100000 and up, and where the average household income, not an individual person, not necessarily a family, but the average household income is 40000 or higher. Typically, if, if we hit all of those, we know there's demand for affordable housing. We're typically selling brand new houses, typically for fifty to maybe fifty-five thousand. That would be a twelve hundred and eighty square foot, three bedroom, two bath house, probably new black GE appliances. They build new mobile homes now out of substantially all the same materials that they build regular site-built houses out of. So again, a new house, we'd be looking to get somebody into that fifty to fifty-five thousand. Older used homes could be five to fifteen thousand um, dollars. So we're all about affordability. Uh, and again, if we're in a market where the average house price, average site-built traditional house is a hundred thousand or more, we can compete with that quite well and help folks become homeowners. Yeah. We can't compete in places like Detroit, where the average house price is like. 50,000, and that's for a site-built house. So if the average is 50, you know there are lower quality site-built houses for 25 grand, and we find that just too hard to compete with. Plus, again, in an economy and free fall like that, you're just not going to have folks that will respect the property, be able to come up with a good down payment. All that said, I'd be happy to own in a place like Gross Point, Michigan, or Pontiac, Michigan, some of the suburbs outside of Detroit are quite good and uh, haven't quite owned there, but I've owned a little farther up in Michigan and Midland, Michigan and, and other places. So you kind of have to, as I say, look, it's all about location, location, location. So yeah, probably wouldn't be interested in buying in Detroit, but in a city like that, buying 20, 30 minutes outside Detroit might be quite fine. So 
you use the example of the relationship between the mobile home price and the you know stationary home price. We had a previous guest on the show, you might know him, but he talked about a spread between apartment rents and what you could rent the mobile home part as an indicating factor. When I when I asked him why he never invested in Louisiana, that was that was the factor he cited. Is that something y'all take a look at? Yes, we'll also look at that. We, I guess, are typically buying in places where the average two-bedroom apartment probably goes for 750 or more. We're probably also trying to buy another criteria. Uh, we're trying to buy within about five miles of a super Walmart. Super Walmarts tend to go in, again, in places where, where the average house price is over 100 grand and the city is over 50. And Walmart does their economic research pretty you just, well. You you ride the coattail. You let you let yep. Walmart do the research. That's it's the, the Burger King strategy, right? McDonald's yeah. invested millions in finding <laughs> the exact right intersection in that town, and then yeah. Burger King just said, "We want to be across the street." I like to buy rent houses by where they're building Starbucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, all that stuff. We look at that. You ultimately, you know, I've I've rattled off about five or six criteria. Very few parks meet all five or six. So sure. sometimes if three of those criteria are strong enough, we'll do it. Four or five, probably. So you also have to get to know the business well enough, as it sounds like you do in apartment buildings, where you can just kind of ask a couple of questions, look at a, a rent roll, look at a property on Google Earth, and in 60 seconds, you should have a gut feeling for whether you want to buy it or not. So I've got, I think, that kind of a gut that I can just kind of look at things and figure out how many of those five or six things it's actually got and what's the price. And let's decide pretty quickly with pretty good accuracy. It's, is it going to be yes or is it going to be no? Awesome. Can you, can you kind of run us over the numbers real quick of what, what are these deals looks like? How you measure your returns, how you evaluate it, how you... yeah. Well, much like other real estate, you're, you're typically looking at a cap rate. Cap rates typically, uh, I would say, are more sort of between seven and nine. Varies a lot with the property and the location. And there are parks at 12 and 15 caps for sale in kind of middle of nowhere, Alabama. We tend not to do that, even though the cap rate's really good. <laughs> Some parks have too much potential. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. nobody wants to buy. My my wife's I, from I a little. I bought one of those kind of parks, not in the southeast, but with unlimited potential, and it was just it was it was too much potential for me. I won't do that again. <laughs> yeah, my my wife is from a little small town, and and I'm from Baton Rouge, which is a bigger town. Big city. Used to, we used to argue about like which one was better and, and she would, she'd say, but the traffic's so terrible in Baton Rouge. I said, you know why the traffic's terrible in Baton Rouge? Because people want to live there. Yeah. <laughs> Take her to like Manhattan or LA if she wants to see what traffic is. I'm sorry. There, no, there's, there's really not real traffic in Baton Rouge. But anyway. <laughs> but yeah, so, so we're looking at cap rates, but again, it gets back to a holistic Set. You've got to just understand the business and understand the P&L and how the property's been managed. There are a lot of sort of soft things like, again, how has the previous owner screened tenants? How well has the previous owner marketed 
the property. We would pay, you know, a lower cap rate on paper for a property that actually has good potential upside. If I'm seeing another owner that just hasn't been managing the property well, hasn't been marketing it, you know, at, at the same time, we, we see deals that are very well managed. We're not miracle workers. We can't pay a high price for a property that's already performing right. very near 100% of what it can do. We're not miracle workers. So we look for properties at reasonable prices that still generally have upside, could be billing for water, could be doing better marketing, definitely could be infilling homes, again, getting new people to come in and become homeowners. We see a lot of parks that have 10 to 30% vacancy in them just nobody doing anything. <laughs> Previous owner, not investing in homes, not bringing in homes. You know, we, we look for that sort of upside and all that collectively impacts what we feel is a fair price. Absolutely. So tell us about your, your fund. How, what types of returns are you typically getting for your investors? Yeah. So we typically generate certainly double digit returns we're doing that both through paying out cash quarterly and then when we sell a property, the profits go back first to our investors only after investors have got all their capital back from capital transactions, sales or refinances, only then would anything come to me. So that's that's what we're doing. We think we'll continue to be able to generate 13 to 15% IRRs. Again, this is a fairly low risk business. There's always demand for affordable housing. And as you mentioned earlier, it is expensive to move houses. And so the tenant base tends to be pretty stable, far more stable than say the apartment building uh, world. So that's what, that's what we do. And we generate for tax purposes, for tax purposes, we generate massive losses. <laughs> We, for, for tax purposes, we try and be as unprofitable as, as possible, if you know what I mean. So we actually cost, we actually How do you hire, do that? Yeah, we work with a couple different firms that do cost segregation studies for us. So they'll go on site and they'll actually measure out like how much pavement is there? How wide is it? How long? How deep? What is the pavement worth? They'll go into some of our properties have a clubhouse They'll, again, measure pipes. They'll look at what sort of doors it has and whether there's, you know, it's a kitchen and then you've got a refrigerator in there. And, you know, what, what kind of shingle, what kind of roofing does that structure have? That would be one of the few things in our any of our sure. park be real improvement and structure. But they just go through we, we our, our property. Uh, we've got one in El Paso, Texas. It's got a retaining wall, sort of a brick retaining wall. There's a little bit of a properties on a little bit kind of of a slope there. So they went in and just counted up how many of those bricks there were, and that's got a a shorter useful life. So they come up with very detailed reports. And again, anything under the current tax law, anything that's 20 years or less useful life, we can write off immediately. So we've actually been writing off more than 60% of our total purchase price, which again, with leverage has generated an awful lot of, of losses for tax purposes. We're making money for real and we're <laughs> distributing it up to our investors quarterly. But but yeah, so our investors uh, in our most recent fund uh, for 2019, for every 
basically call it 100,000 that they invested. Uh, uh, they wrote off about $30,000 in losses. And this most recent year, we've bought some more properties. We'll have more losses. It'll probably be a bit higher. But anyway, so generating losses enables our investors to actually get a refund from the IRS or at least get a credit and not have to pay you know, as much tax. Either way, it's real money coming to our limited partners. So none of our like double digit returns are count those tax benefits. That's additional uh, yeah. icing on, on the cake. Sure, we're, so. we're able to generate generally double digit returns just from actually running the properties at a profit and then selling them generally at a profit. And we do the same thing with the cost seg. I just, I guess in my mind, like you don't really own anything besides land. So I was like, what are you, what are you depreciating? Raw (laughs) non-depreciable land. But no, I mean, if it were raw land, there wouldn't be roads for the tenants to drive to their house on. Their houses wouldn't have running water. Our properties also, again, might have a retaining wall, might have a fence, might have a sign, all sorts of stuff, they cost segregate and we're able to expense immediately. Awesome. awesome it's pretty awesome. generous. It's too generous, but. <laughs> so the whole world's in a bubble, it feels like. How do, and I, and I know the answer, I just want you to say it in front of everybody else. How, how do mobile home parks react in the event of a market crash or some, you know, some yep. unfavorable recession? Great question, and and we actually covered this uh, in the webinar that's on our Park Avenue website. But I went back and looked at how the three mobile park REITs performed during the 08-09 housing recession. There are, again, three REITs specialized in mobile home parks. And in a nutshell, what happened was that while the stock price sold off from, I measured it from a year prior to the recession, while the stocks collectively dipped down about 45%, they dipped down in the middle of the recession. And that was when the industry had its two best ever back-to-back quarters, the highest profitability ever. (laughs) I think it was Q4 of 08 and Q1 of 09. Uh, again, folks can, can get more off, off our website. So investors got nervous and sold off the stock. Sure. But again, the underlying performance was better than ever, not just those two quarters, but across the board during the recession, those three it's, mobile yes. home park REITs paid out more cash, earned more money. They have their REITs. They have to pay out like 95%. They did better than ever. And then after the recession, of course, earnings grew even faster, but they still grew from the year prior to the recession going into the recession. Earnings were still up less, slower growth, but up. And then again, earnings really took off after the recession was over. So, and that was again, a housing centric recession. It wasn't like the dot-com bubble that was in the tech world. This was housing driven recession, 08 and 09. It's it's inversely related. When things are tough, demand for affordable housing skyrockets, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing was that the 08, 09 recession was really concentrated in like 20 zip codes, something like that. 80% of all the mortgage defaults sort of were like LA, Vegas, Miami, and generally mobile home parks, again, are spread throughout the Midwest. 
So I had just bought my first mobile home park out near Norman, Oklahoma, near, near where OU is in 07. And so I went headlong right into this recession and I kept expecting, you know, my tenants to blow up and move out and that didn't happen. We bumped up rents uh, coming off a very low base, $110 rents, but we took them up to about $155, I think by 2010. So about a 50% increase in rents, again, coming off a very (laughs) below market rate of $110 a month. But we remained full. Rents were up about 50%. And so even just owning First Park at that point, I had substantially similar results, I think, to what those big publicly traded REITs have done. Yeah. I always say I was in college in 2008. I don't recall my rent going down because there was a housing market crash. We just (laughs) just kept paying it, you know? Yeah. I was a renter too then. My (laughs) rent went up, not down. (laughs) Well, great. Real quick, I want to hop over to our, our, our radio round to help our listeners get to know you a little bit better. Just yep. three quick questions. So the first one is, what is your favorite book? You know, at least as far as business goes, yeah. I'm a big fan of Snowball, which is, I think, the best biography on Warren Buffett. I say it's the best because it covers not just how he invests, but it also covers a fair amount about his personal life and some of the sacrifices he made. He frankly wasn't the world's best dad. He didn't beat his kids or anything, <laughs> but Warren was just really focused on work. And he's just well, well written because you, you understand how he invests, but you also understand the trade-offs. We can't be 100% family and 100% work and 100% volunteer there are only so many hours in the day and, and Buffett chose to spend his time as he did. But anyway, I just think that book snowball is, is, is particularly good. Okay. What's your favorite quote? So I've got one here. This is from president Calvin Coolidge. He says, nothing in this world can take the place of persistence. Nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent persistence and determination alone are omnipotent. That's my favorite quote as well. Oh, um, is it? Oh, great. Yeah. You're the first person to ever great say minds that on think the show. alike there, Sterling. In, in college, I had, uh, I had that taped to the mirror in my bathroom. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. So, I've yeah. so I, I've made a lot of mistakes, but I just keep, I'm dumb enough to just keep getting back up and going yeah. for more punishment, you know? <laughs> and right. then I learn like, oh, this is a better way to... <laughs> To live my Always. life, a better, a better way to run a property. You just got to get back up and be persistent and, and learn. I call it the Forrest Gump effect. I'm too dumb to quit, you know? <laughs> That's right. <Yeah>. Exactly. <laughs> so what do you like to do in your free time when you're not working? You know, I'm uh, married now for the last 10 years. Uh, I got a wonderful wife and now three uh, wonderful kids. At least the kids are wonderful about 99% of the time, <laughs> which is pretty good. Very few things pay off 99% of the time. But I tend to do a lot of family stuff. So I, I've come down here in our RV to spend a, about almost three weeks here in our Breeze Lake Park down here in, in Brownsville. We just did um, Sunday uh, after church. We did a, a project with the kids I don't know if I've got any of them handy. We we built some little lanterns out of Coke bottles. We glued tissue paper 
onto the bottles and stuck like Siloom light sticks down in them and made lanterns out of them. So doing, doing fun stuff like that. I, I don't have as much time to, you know, play golf or read a book or work out. <laughs> it. Um, it, it tends to be fun stuff. Is How, is how old are the kids? Three, five, and six. That's encouraging that they're going to be good 99% of the time because I've got two under two and they're bad 99% oh, of the time. <laughs> so I'm looking yeah. forward to the flip-flop. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, anyway, we're, we're blessed to have the flexibility again, to travel this way. My wife takes the lead on homeschooling our kids. So they're, they're not pulled out of school while we're down here. They're, they're doing school, you know, uh, well, Alistair, our eldest boy is in first grade now. So he'll, he'll, he'll be in school in the morning. They're now over at the swimming pool. The whole country uh, was homeschooled this year. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's just that we were doing it when homeschooling wasn't cool. Yeah, we just right. we thought it we we thought it would be cool, and people looked at us like we were crazy. But we did it anyway, and so yeah, so it's it's perfect for for our lifestyle. And again, we're just blessed to have the, the flexibility from all the the real estate income to really be there in our kids' lives awesome. in that way. Awesome, awesome. So tell us how we can um, get in touch with you, find out more about you, learn about your fun, keep track of you on social media. Sure. So our website is parkavenuepartners.com. And folks will see right at the very top center of that page, parkavenuepartners.com. There's a, a, a button to click to join our mailing list. Frankly, I don't do as good of a job of mailing as I should. It's probably less than one email a month. Uh, and it's always one click, unsubscribe, and we never sell our lists. So folks can join our mailing list. They'll keep abreast of the deals that we're doing and get notices about our next fund launching again, should be this May of, of this year, 2021. And then I also uh, have started the industry's first podcast dedicated to mobile home park investing. It's simply called Mobile Home Park Investors, and they can find that on Apple iTunes. They can find it up on Stitcher. And we've actually got the website, mobilehomeparkinvestors.com. People can just click there and find the links and then also come from there onto our uh, LinkedIn group. I run the industry's largest group on LinkedIn, over 6,000 people trading tips and tricks. And then I also publish an industry calendar, which people can subscribe to and just get events down into their, their, their devices calendar. So all that's at mobilehomeparkinvestors.com. Awesome. Awesome. And connect well, with me on LinkedIn. Absolutely. Will do. Jefferson, thank you so much for joining us. I really enjoyed it. I learned a ton. I always say, you know, um, I started the podcast to have an excuse to reach out to really smart cats like yourself and ask them all the questions I already had. So this is a perfect example. I really wanted to know a lot more about mobile home parks and I got a chance to ask one of the experts today. So thank you for sharing with me. And I'm sure, you know, a ton of our listeners feel the exact same way. And we pay referral fees. So if anybody comes across an off market deal, that's just not right for you to buy let us know. We paid out over 900,000 bucks over the last couple of years in referral fees for off-market mobile home park deals. Awesome. Awesome. We'll definitely keep you in mind for that. And we look forward to keeping up with you on your journey. Thank you, Sterling. Have a blessed day. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to the Rent Roll Radio Show brought to you by Crestworth Capital. 
We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. You can also visit us at CrestworthCapital.com or RentRollRadio.com or follow us on Facebook at RentRollRadio or at Crestworth Capital. If you would like to reach us, feel free to shoot us an email at info at RentRollRadio.com or sterling at CrestworthCapital.com. We hope you come back next week to join us on some more of our journey. Until then, happy investing. <laughs>